0: hey there recovery nation producer john here over the last two episodes of full potential now we've been telling the story of tattoo pioneer and former gang member freddie negretti along the way we enlisted the help of author steve jones as well as acclaimed poet and freddie's former rival gang member luis rodriguez in today's special bonus episode we shift our focus to luis rodriguez hitting rock bottom and climbing back through the native american recovery method stay tuned
1: So have you been, how long have you been sober?
2: Um, 24 years, uh, because what happened is after I got off the drugs, I ended up drinking, and I had 20 years on top of the, you know, alcoholism to deal with. But, okay. but here's one thing. I never went back to jail, and never went back to the gang crime or heroin. So I had other issues. That's why I have another memoir called, it's called It Calls You Back. Because even when you leave that life, you're still having to address the madness that keeps calling you back. You know, And it takes the form of rage and or some addiction. And I had to write about that, including losing my kids, not being a father for my two oldest kids in a way. And then having to inherit my kids because they were already troubled um, youth, teenagers, and then having two other boys beyond that. Learning to be a father, sobering up, and beginning to change my life again. Um, so that was my my trajectory. He had a different one. Um, but what I'm saying is that neither one of us, I mean, both of us, our homeboys that were heavy duty involved, they did 30, 40 years in prison. They were heroin addicts for 30, 40 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we were still yeah. struggling. We had our relapses. We had our. Backs and downs, ups and downs, but we were basically, we were in and out of jails, maybe, but we were really not in that world anymore. It was just our own personal issues that we had to go back, and he, he had his. Um, and then, of course, the art kept saving them, just like for me, the writing, uh, it was became writing. I, I let go of the art because, to be honest with you, he really was a talented artist. I really wasn't. <laughs> I did all those murals, but I really wasn't that good compared to him. And, um, but my writing was really where I think my skills and my, and my um, passions were. So that helped me through a lot of this. Um, so, you, so I think so that's what I'm saying, yeah.
1: So you really, it sounds like, Luis, that, you know, this artistic side, I mean, Freddie as well, but yeah. you was probably, you know, murals first and then writing. Yeah. So that kind of Would you say that that's kind of the thread was always the outlet for you?
2: Yeah, and I think it saved my life. I mean, people say that, you know, but I can testify to that. Um, I think, I mean, okay, when you're on heroin, and I was on it for so long, it's the hardest drug to leave. Um, I know there are worse drugs out there, but heroin is one of the hardest because it is so compelling, and, of course, it's very painful to leave. The only thing that could get me to leave, and there was no – recovery programs in East LA, there was no methadone, there was nothing but cold turkey. It's the only way to get out. And the last time I was in jail, I was uh, in the county jail and I was facing six years, minimum six years in prison, and I decided I don't want this life no more. I was prepared to go to prison, but I didn't want to be part of the, the prison gang. I didn't want to be part of the Chicano crazy life anymore. And so I started my heroin withdrawals there. Uh, It was just me saying, I need to change. I can't do this anymore. You know what I'm saying. When you're tired of being tired, you know. Uh, Yeah. I want to dive
1: a little bit deeper here, Luis, because I think it's so important for other people to hear. Yeah. Just, I mean, your side of things. I mean, because there's a lot of people that reach that same point, but they can't. They might go full turkey and go for a while, but they go back, and it's probably even some people you know that couldn't yeah,
2: they absolutely. might have reached
1: that same decision point you did. But what do you think was the difference? I mean what do you for you, what was the thing that was it just like enough is enough kind of thing or is it something different than that?
2: Yeah, it was that but I think I also had the advantage. I was blessed with like I said, this mentor, a couple of teachers, people who cared for me that in my in our neighborhoods, both Freddies and mines. There wasn't too many people who cared, but when there was, they went all out. I was one of the people that got helped, even though I went back and forth. I was in and out of jails, and they kept coming. My parents would threw me out. I had no more homies. who was almost all of them had died. My close homies, and um, they were the only ones. And I told somebody once asked me that I get scared straight, and I was never scared. I was never scared of heroin, never scared of prison, never scared of dying. I was ready to die. I wanted to die so badly. Only I wanted to do it in a blaze blaze of glory, you know, die for the gang, you know. And that wasn't happening. The thing that helped me is what I call cared straight. I was cared straight. People cared for me. People helped me. And uh, when I ended up in the county jail, they were the only ones that helped me. Not I ended up not doing the state prison term because they wrote letters on my behalf. People went to court. The judge said it was the first time he ever saw anybody do that. This is in 1973. I was 18 years old. And I was prepared to go to prison. The judge gave me a break, gave me time, served in the county jail. And I walked out with my first heroin withdrawals there and walked out and said, I'm never going back. I'm never going back. That's it. That's it. I had a little opening in my life. A door opened, and I had to go through it. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Then, so so the, Yeah, yeah <laughs> then you 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 went through it. And then is that where the alcohol kind of comes in so you get yeah away which from is the, the drug
2: this is the sad part I don't know if you know, but people who are on heroin they're teens there's actually millions of people in this country, but most of them get out of it. I don't know if you're aware of that, but alcoholism ends up
1: being number one way that they go Genius. yeah they sort of like flip flop yeah. the addiction
2: yeah, um, and that's what's bad now for me it was like well these least white heroin was was bad for me, not because I didn't care for it. I loved heroin. I would have stayed in heroin my whole life. I didn't want to be owned by the gang, by the police, and by the drug, and that's what happens. Heroin, you're owned by everybody. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, it's a great uh, way I, to put it, Luis.
2: Yeah, I was uh, homeless in the streets when I was 15. I was using heroin intravenously, and I was stealing. I was mugging people, and I saw people do the most horrendous things for a fix. And maybe there's a part of me, I was in the abyss, but I couldn't fall all the way down. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. a part of me that kept saying, man, I, I just don't want to be owned, man. And then when you're in the jails, the county jail, in particular in the, in the Mexican mafia prison gang, which both me and Freddie had to deal with one time or the other, tries to own you. You're a tattooed, he- heroin-using gang member. You're owned by them. They control everything. I was like, nothing scared me. But that was something I didn't want. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you were kind of ready to have your own life. ready to go. Now, the other thing I think is like people say when you bottom out. You know, I think bottoming out, everybody bottoms out. and Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But something has to happen when you bottom out. Some kind of grace has to come in there. You know what I mean? Some kind of epiphany that it's not just bottoming out, obviously. Something has to be there, like the door opening that you didn't know. And then you have that little bit of courage that says, I'm going to go through the door. Um, that's why a lot of people don't make it. People say, well, go through this, go through this program. They haven't quite found that grace or epiphany in their life. And it might be just an echo of it, you know what I'm saying, but something that they can grab onto. Because if you don't got something to grab onto, you're just going to fall back.
1: That is, man, I've never heard it put that way, but you sell it, said it so eloquently, Louise. It's part about like, because like, we always hear that, like, that person hasn't rock bottom enough or right. when they hit their rock bottom, they're going to get it. But you're saying the rock bottom is one thing, but right. you have to have that little doorway that you see that you didn't know was there and yeah. have that epiphany and then have enough courage to walk
2: through it. Yeah. I mean, just like, like you say, tired of being tired, but also there's got to be a thread to pull you through. If you don't have something else, it's going to be very difficult. I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just difficult. You know, when I quit drinking – Uh, I had several epiphanies, but one of them was my wife, who's now been married for 30 years now, and she saw me through a really terrible drinking period. At the very end there, it was really bad. And she went with me to a bar. I used to love going to bars. I didn't really drink at home because the kids were there. My teenage son, who was in gangs and trouble, I just didn't want to do it at home, but I would spend every night in these bars. And one night, my poor wife shows up. And, um, she never been to a bar with me, really. She just never came. That's not her thing. She's not a gang girl; she's just a really sweet, beautiful person who married a pretty messed up guy, and she saw me at my worst and um and what happened is she was really mad because I started flirting with other women. I started you know acting like you do when you're drunk. you're a mutated person. You don't care about what anybody thinks or what anybody says. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I forgot that she was there. I just didn't pay her care no more. She got so mad. But she could've done several things. She could have walked away, thrown something at me, found another guy. If she was my first wife, she would have found another guy. <laughs> but you know what she did? She stood on top she went on top of the bar and started dancing. And it was this an angry dancing. And you know what? I I I told I told my wife, listen, you shouldn't have had to do that. No woman should ever have to do that. But I don't. I don't know how to express to her how powerful it was. How powerful it was, you know, to see her, just dance like that. Dance for me. Dance for life. Maybe saying, "Look at me. Look what you're losing." It was. It was a moment of great deep grace for me, and I was realizing that I was also losing my kids. My oldest son was in gangs and drugs, just like I was. I had two younger boys that were needing me, or at least one younger boy. My, my fourth son hadn't been born yet. And a daughter who was in bad shape, the kids at home, and I wasn't being a father to them. And I had this beautiful wife, and everything just slapped me across the face. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, it, it, yeah.
1: yeah, continue.
2: Yeah, and then I just realized I, I got to stop this. I, and I was trying to do it by myself. I went to uh, NAAA, and then ended up in another recovery program in Chicago, which was very helpful. And then pretty much soon after, I just decided to go the Native American way. Uh, my mother is Tarumata native from Chihuahua, Mexico, which is a tribe that's uh, linked to the Hopi, Pueblo, Shoshone, Arapaho, different tribes in the U.S. And the Native American Center in Chicago has a great connection with Mexican tribes, unlike a lot of Native American centers. And they also have a great recovery program where they use a sweat lodge. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so I started doing that. That was the most helpful I'm not against other meetings. I tell people I go, I go to N.A. meetings where people need help. Sometimes I will go to meetings myself, like I was in Madrid earlier this year, and I ended up going to an N.A. meeting because sometimes the only people you can talk to are people who've been through it, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and you yeah. need to do that. But really, it's the Native American uh, recovery work that really helped me get through the drinking, and I've and I never gone back. And 24 years, um, I've been sober, and it really was, again, that was a particular epiphany.
1: Wow, man, that's congr- congrats yeah. on that. That is like a huge amount of time. You know, I never thought we would end up talking about this, but could you tell me a little bit about how the Native American um, recovery process is maybe yeah. different than what would be considered the traditional recovery process, especially like the use of the sweat lodge and
2: how yeah. you know, so, parts of that? I think I think that's what's helpful. It's not just the circles, which of course are very prevalent in uh, tostep, which is very good. Again, I don't have nothing tostep. It saved a lot of people's lives. I just um, found something that was more to my roots, you know. And uh, what they do, though, the sweat lodge is a very powerful tool. It's a purification ceremony. It, it through the sweats, through the prayers, through the sage, through the cedar all these natural elements, you start removing a lot of toxicity. And not just toxicity in your body, which, of course, comes from all the drugs and alcohol and everything you're having, but also the spirit, you know, your toxicity in your own spirit that has held back um, your life, that has trapped you, you know, in all kinds of these kind of things that people do. It's very powerful, and it is hard. It's It's an ordeal. Uh, sometimes you feel like dying in there. You're not gonna die. It's it's very healthy, but you have to go through this ordeal. And then you got a community of native people who look at you and respect you and honor you. And and it's in the total darkness, so you can cry, you can pray, you can do whatever you need to do in there. Nobody's gonna notice it, and you just do what you have to do. And then you come out of it, you know, just a different space. And if you do enough of it, it really is powerful. Um, I've I've introduced it. In recovery programs with homeboy industries which is the main um home intervention i mean gang intervention program here in LA. i have introduced it in prisons now there's several prisons that have done it and some have done it on their own I've tried to bring it in as much as I can but it's, I, it's not it's not something you, you can use it with others it's not closed to native peoples as you know uh, african americans whites uh, Asians have been through it so it's not a, it's not a closed thing but in general it's with native peoples from uh, here in the U.S. as well as from Mexico or Central America that end up doing it.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, Luis. I totally appreciate it, especially learning more about like like a slightly different path people can people have taken in. Yeah. It's been helpful for them.
0: Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you to Luis Rodriguez for taking the time to help us tell Freddie's story and for sharing his own as well. Check out Luis's book, It Calls You Back, an odyssey through love, addiction, revolutions, and healing. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.